Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Greetings, my friend, and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. I'm your host, founder of EnhancerEdge.com, Brad Wilson, and today I have the opportunity to speak with a true poker pioneer and insider. Having worked for about 15 years within the top levels of one of the largest poker sites in the world, you are about to enjoy a bounty of amazing stories about the good old days of poker stars. My guest today is author, professional card player, and former PokerStars card room manager and head of communications, Lee Jones. Lee's initial involvement in the industry started with a very young PokerStars in 2003 when he was asked to serve as their card room manager. Under this position, Lee was responsible for coordinating tournaments, making decisions on the games that would be offered, and much, much more. Over the years, he's worked as the executive host of the European Poker Tour, COO of Cardrunners.com, and card room manager at Cake Poker. He's written and continues to write articles for well-known poker publications like PokerNews.com and Bluff Magazine. Like I mentioned before, he's also the author of the book Winning at Low Limit Hold'em and one half of the two-man team that developed the sit-and-go in-game system for heads-up tournament play. Currently, you'll find him on YouTube, where he and previous Chasing Poker Greatness podcast guest Tommy Angelo have begun working together to create videos designed to simplify the game of poker so that it is more accessible and enjoyable for live cash game players. During my conversation with Lee, he'll let you in on how he got started with poker in the 80s, what brought him to work at PokerStars, and even a bit of what things look like from inside the world's largest poker site when Black Friday struck the U.S. like a lightning bolt and the online poker landscape changed forever. It's rare that one gets to hear from someone who was there almost from the beginning and watched as online poker grew from sites that could barely attract a few hundred players into monster empires with hundreds of thousands of players from all over the world competing at the same time. So strap in and get ready to enjoy Lee's greatness bombs and take a fond trip down memory lane. Once again, I thank you for joining me. And without any further ado, this is Chasing Poker Greatness with Lee Jones. Lee, good morning. How are we doing, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's my pleasure. And I, I love that all of these conversations, we do this for the audience, right? Even though we've already covered the good morning and all the, all the pleasantries, I'm very much looking forward to, to our conversation. And I, I want to I start this thing out by asking you about greatness because it's an abstract word and means a lot of different things to, to a lot of different people. What does greatness mean to you? You know, I don't know how much you know of my background and my interests and stuff like that, but my true love that is well ahead of poker is music. And music, to me, greatness, I, I, I have faces 
in my mind when you say the word greatness and, and it's musicians who, and sometimes it's composers or songwriters, but particularly for me, the act of watching a musician sparkle is that's, that's the image that I have in my mind when you say what's greatness is somebody who just does something with such fluidity, with such professionalism. The, the classic line is they make it look easy. And yet, you know, that it's not easy. And so you are just, you're like, okay, this has been magic because they are doing something difficult and complex. And yet to the outsider, it just looks like, okay, it looks like falling off a log. And that to me is greatness. Looks like, looks like they could do it. They could just, yeah, I can do that. It's, and the pressure, the stakes are typically very high in those situations too, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're performing in front of a large audience, right? And yet the best, the truly greats, they just deliver every time, you know? There's this, this interesting, interesting thought too that like the better you get at something, right? Like you love music and, and I'm assuming that, that, you know, you've immersed yourself into music and, and I love poker and I've immersed myself in, into poker obviously for the last 15 years. And sometimes just on uh, wh- wherever it is, a live stream or something, somebody does something in the poker sense and like few people really understand right. what makes it amazing. But mm-hmm. being one of the people that's like, oh my God, that was genius on like so next level. And one of my experiences in music is, is that occasionally I will see something like that. And the first thing I have to do is reach out to somebody. And quite often, interestingly, it's Tommy Angelo. <laughs> right. To say, you need to go... You know, if, if it was like a YouTube or something, it's like, you need to go watch this because I need to share what you're talking about. The point that 99% of the people watching just kind of went, oh, that was nice. And in the meantime, I'm going like, oh my God, that's genius. <laughs> yeah. Your <laughs> mind just boom. And f- for those of you that don't know, Tommy, Tommy Angelo also heavily involved in music. Um, if you haven't checked out that, that conversation that i had with him very involved with music i believe until he couldn't really hear anymore right he had a a hearing problem that he did have a hearing problem but he still has instruments all over the house and he and he practices harmonica constantly and he and i play together and uh, we actually we actually played the soundtrack for the poker simple videos so uh yeah he's he's really into it but the beautiful thing about Tommy is is that I can e- either about something poker or something music I can say to him look at this thing and not get oh well, that was nice but I can get that was genius right there right and it's very subtle and a lot of times only obvious to people that you know to to people that have spent a lifetime uh, in a, in a specific endeavor, right? Um, exactly. Tell me, tell me the story. How did you get involved in poker? Wow, um, I've been playing since I was a little kid. You know, and my dad taught me sitting on the living room floor. I mean, playing with the plastic drugstore chips that 
I mean, you guys are too young to remember this, but I mean, they were like these just cheap little, like, like thin plastic wafery things. Yeah, I'm not too young. I remember like the Hoyle, uh, I, I guess they would be Walmart in my case, chips, but like poker chips weren't, weren't super prevalent until, I don't even right. know, 2005. I mean, yeah, something like that. But, but yeah, so I, I mean, he taught us five card draw and stuff. And I just remember him saying, don't hold an ace if you have a pair. But I mean, never for money or anything. It was just like a game, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I got serious about it in the mid eighties. Um, I was living in San Jose and there was an article in the, like the Sunday supplement of the newspaper discussing how they were playing low ball at this club. It was like 15 minutes from my house. And interestingly, the newspaper was editorially kind of like violently opposed to the poker clubs in San Jose. And they're like, isn't this terrible? I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. I need to go down. I need to go down and see this. And I went down and saw it. And this was the days before, like you guys, I know you're too young to remember smoking in poker rooms, but oh my God, it was like, it had low ceilings and 75% of the clientele was smoking and you could not see across the room. I mean, it was just, it looked like a, like a cowboy scene from a movie or something, but I just sat there and they were playing ace to five low ball. And the smallest game was two was two dollar bets before and after the draw, and then the biggest game they had a two hundred dollar low ball game, so it was two hundred dollar bets before and after the draw. And um, I finally worked up the nerve to sit down in the game, you know. And all these people were obviously much older than I was, and I had no idea what I was doing. How old were you at the time? I'm thirty, but we're talking about thirty five years ago now, right? And what I, I will, ne- there was an epiphany for me where when you play any draw game, people discard in order, right? Around the table. And it, it, very early in my experience, I thought, well, these people have been playing for years, for decades. They, they're far better than I am. And then I, would, I saw a couple of things. And the first thing I really noticed was is that even though everybody discards in order around the table, a lot of people were, were discarding out of turn. <laughs> obviously and not a great like, strategy yeah and i was like well wait a minute <laughs> you get to wait and see how many cards the other players discard and you're giving away how many cards you're discarding you know had i known the term gto i probably would have said that's probably not gto <laughs> right it, you're they're neutralizing their own positional disadvantage like Basically, you just take your time and watch what everybody does, and you're in position every hand. Yes, exactly. And so I was just, and I thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe I can actually beat this game. <laughs> what, what did you make of that realization at the time? It, I mean, it was really that there are better and worse ways to do this, right? Like I made a few dollars playing in college. But again, this was long before the moneymaker boom and all that. So there wasn't the culture of playing. But, you know, I mean, people would get together on dorm, dorm room floors and play seven stud variants for dimes and quarters. But they were always drinking and I wasn't. And so I always thought, well, my edge is I'm sober and they're not. But after a while, you know, from watching this and then and watching people discard, you know, they would call a raise before the draw and then draw like three cards. And, and I just like, and I would think to myself, well, I know nothing 
but I know that's not right. <laughs> right. And so the, the epiphany was this can be beaten, right? There's better and worse ways to play this game. And like anything else that I've ever learned in my life, if I can find the right books and or the right teacher, I can do this. So who was your teacher? Who'd you go to? What books did you read? What was the next It was hard to find books. There was a guy named Norman Zade, who was a math professor. And he wrote a book, and I don't remember the name of it. You can look him up. I mean, the book is in print, or I mean, it's you can find it on the internet. And it was sort of the first book that really mathematically approached poker games well. And it didn't cover Hold'em, but it covered, I mean, it covered lowball. And there was, you know, two or three pages of sort of basic ace to five lowball strategy. And I was like, okay, I mean, <laughs> book, right? Yep. And, and so I started reading his books and, and I thought, yes, I was correct. Every, these people have no idea what they're doing. And so I just started playing and started beating, beating the lowball games. And this and is then, like a, a hobby Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was a software engineer in Silicon Valley for, I mean, I was a software engineer for a quarter century. So this 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 is a little window into how you think about things, right? Um, building, how do things fit together? How do things work? I, I mean, obviously, you live in Silicon Valley, so it, it makes a lot of sense <laughs> that you're that you're involved in tech. Um, yeah. So I did that. And then um, in the late 80s, Hold'em got legalized in California. And like the lowball games are gone within weeks. Really? It, it caught on oh, yeah. that quickly? Like wildfire? Oh, it was like, it was like the Northern California clubs got permission to deal Hold'em. And it was literally weeks and the lowball games were gone. Wow. Why do you think well, just easier to play more fun more action what was the the rationale more like? action more betting i mean see lowball has two betting rounds hold them as four you know you and get you're to talking see limit the, limit too right? yeah it was limit. it was limit holding i mean yeah it, it, it was just i don't know i mean maybe it's like with two cards you can kind of look at two cards and say well anything can happen you look at a five card lowball hand and quite, I mean, even, even the most desperate of gamblers kind of look at most of them and go, well, there's, <laughs> there's not a great deal of hope here. Well, they are still drawing three, um, which is probably not, <laughs> not, not too great. But uh, yeah, so that, that, was the, that, was the big, that was the big flip for me. And I just started um, playing uh, as, you know, hold them as, as time and, and job and life permitted. And in the early 90s, I started uh, chatting with some people on the um, rec.poker Usenet forum. This was basically what preceded 2 plus 2 and, you know, Facebook and forums as we know them. And then uh, I, like, I just wanted to kind of understand how to play Hold'em. And I went out and I bought Sklansky and Malmuth's books, you know, which all the Limit Hold'em players did. I mean, right? And what I really remember was reading uh, Hold'em Poker for Advanced Players, which was the Bible for Limit Hold'em players. And they would say, do this and do this. And if he does this, then he has this hand. And, and if you do this, they will respond in the following way. Well, these guys, I mean, you know, Mason and David were playing in like the 2040 game at the Mirage. 
And the difference between the 24 game at the Mirage and the three, six game at garden city in San Jose was night and day. And so, you know, I would try these things that would, the thing I classically remember is, is that they said, okay, suppose you have a set and the flush card comes on the turn and the guy bets or raise him because he, unless he has the nut flush, he'll probably call and then he'll check the river. Well, if he, if you fill up, then you, then you bet and you get an extra bet. And if you don't fill up, then you check it down, you lose the same amount. And I said, great idea, right? So I, I get all set, you know, and, 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 I, and, I, and I flop my set and, and then the flush card comes on the turn and the guy bets and I raise and he three bets me <laughs> and I call and the river's a complete brick and he bets and I call because it's limit holding and I'm getting 19 to one and he shows down the six high flush. And I was like, you know, okay, things are a little different here. Or, and, or they would say, okay, now suppose three people see the flop and I'd be flipping through the pages saying, suppose six people see the flop. <laughs> right. <laughs> For three bets each. Right. <laughs> and that was, that was what was happening. I mean, in those early days of California Hold'em, like six people to the flop for three bets each was what they called Tuesday. Right. It's right. very, very, very normal. This, this went on yeah. for like a decade. Like it, yeah. it, I can, I can remember. So I'm not young enough. I'm not old enough to remember that, but I am young enough to say that when I started my career, I played on a boat to nowhere and it was 10, 20 hold'em and it was five, 10 hold'em and we we're nine handed. Two guys wanted to stick with five, 10. The other seven wanted to play 10, 20. So it's a four hour boat ride. We said, okay, by street, you know, if these two guys are out, we raise the stakes up, right? There were two streets in four hours that the stakes were 10, 20. Those two guys were in every hand to the river. One of the two of them were in every hand to the river, except for two streets, period, in four hours. Like, I mean, it's just insane That's to think about. That's how the game about. played. Yeah. That's how the game played. And so basically when I, when I was thinking about that, I was talking to my friends in the Bay Area. Um, again, this is sort of in the early years of internet poker discussion. I was like, everything I'm reading in Mason Mama's book is not wrong, but it's almost irrelevant to me. And so I started writing down notes and, and talking with friends. Um, I'm going to just give a shout out to somebody nobody's ever heard of. His name is Roy Hashimoto. And it was Roy who sort of gave me some, Roy's like a super genius software guy. And Roy was the one who gave me some real insight in, into what felt right to him about how to play in pots where, you know, it's like six people for three bets each. But um, ultimately winning low limit hold'em came out of that in 1994. Yeah. So I, I did the winning low limit hold'em thing for, um, I mean, you know, and, and the book came out and, and I made, you know, a couple hundred dollars a quarter in royalties <laughs> Yeah, and just, just, you know, banged away at my uh, usual Silicon Valley gig and played, limit hold them when I could. And then, um, then moneymaker exploded and the WPT exploded all kind of in that same perfect storm around 2003. And, uh, that's when Isai Scheinberg at poker stars called me and said, you know, like, I, I just remember the phone call. I remember where I was standing in Santa Clara, California with my, you know, brick size cell phone talking to Isai and him saying, 
you know, at first I thought he wanted me to just like sign some books or something. And then after a couple of minutes, I thought, oh my God, he's talking to me about a job. What year was and, this? Uh, this was 03. 03. So like right after Chris, Chris won the World Series in uh, May of 03. And so June, remember, and he was, he was Poker Stars patched and logoed throughout that whole ESPN journey. Was he? I don't even remember that. Oh yeah. Oh, go watch, go watch the 2003 ESPN video. Yeah. It's, it is a thing to see. That's so, so funny. There is a scene where Chris, I think it's the one where he busts Ivy, but he goes and he basically jumps into the arms of Dan Goldman, who was the marketing manager for poker stars at the time. And Dan is wearing a, they're both wearing poker stars jackets (laughs) <laughs> and they're, they're in this bear hug and they're kind of dancing around. And the Poker Stars logo is essentially rotating right there on ESPN. I, you couldn't buy that, right? Wow. Yeah. And um, so Poker Stars just exploded. And, and Isai was looking for people that knew poker, but were, that were, had jobs that were professionals. You know, I mean, it, it had a business background. And he ended up, he got in touch with me and I, I jumped into the poker world and I basically left my job in August of 03 and went to work for poker stars and the rest is kind of history. Do you still work for poker stars? No, I left poker stars at the beginning of 2019. So it was a, it was about a 15 year run. It's a pretty good run. It was an amazing run. It was it was an incredible experience. Money maker fueled run. Um, oh, well, I, every time I see Chris, I, I tell him that he is indubitably responsible for for my job, my career, all the experiences I've had in the poker industry. I can I can thank him for. It, it's so it, it's so interesting thinking like because of this podcast, I, I've I've thought about all these things like the the results, right? Like. How much money has Sammy Farha made because he lost to Chris Moneymaker? How much money has Phil Ivey made because he lost to Chris Moneymaker? Like all these guys that felt like losers at the time, like have gained so much because of that one tournament. When I'm at the World Series and sometimes they're showing the videos from old World Series, you know? Yep. And if I'm walking down the hall and, and it's the scene where Chris bluffs Sammy out of his shoes, Sammy's sitting there. And Chris is sitting there and 15 years later, I'm going, don't call Sammy, Sammy, don't call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, no offense to Sammy Farha, but I shudder to think, you know, does, is poke, does poker become what it, it, it doesn't become what it is today. If Sammy Farha beats Chris Moneymaker, like that is, that's probably the most high stakes heads up match. The poker world will <laughs> ever, ever see. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what were your your early responsibilities at Poker Stars? Like, what, what did that look like? Like back in the day, what what was the the vision? Do you know, I don't know how much people. Unfortunately, nobody's ever written the story of Poker Stars, and a couple people have talked about doing it, and I I desperately wish somebody would because it's a story you couldn't. I mean, even starting with Chris, right? It's a story you that Hollywood would laugh at because the script is so absurd. Please tell me the story. um, Tell me, tell me all the stories. I want to hear, hear these stories. Well, I mean, I don't have all the stories, but Isai Scheinberg was, uh, he worked for IBM 
and he'd worked for IBM, but he just had a passion for poker. And he started playing on some of the earlier sites um, like Paradise and Planet Poker and those. And he he just said, I can do better than this. And in particular, um, Isai and his cadre of programmers came up with, they figured out how to program multi-table tournaments before anybody else did. And, and by the way, I will tell you, um, and, and I just I just say this every chance I get in public and in within the poker world, Isai Scheinberg is, if you ever get to meet Isai Scheinberg, he is the smartest man in the room. He just is. Okay. And and he never talk, he never says that. <laughs> but after a few minutes, you just you just know it to be true. Oh yeah. And he's also one of the most integrity-filled loyal human beings you will ever meet. And, and in that sense, it was an incredible honor to work for him. He just had this vision and, and he said to his guys, we're going we're gonna to solve multi-table tournaments. Well, of course, once you have a multi-table tournament, then the ability to build massive prize pools becomes possible, right? Rather than having 10 people competing for a fixed amount of money, well, you have 100 or 1,000 people. And so suddenly prize pools started to get insane. And somebody would win a a relatively crazy amount of money. And so what I remember getting there was the site just growing like a weed. I I mean, it just seemed impossible how fast the the signups were coming. And the, the, it was really growth pains that was always the, the biggest problem in front of us. Like, how do we deal with this new problem of scale? I was in the Costa Rica office, and I remember when we saw 10,000 people on the client for the first time at one time. What did you think? How did that make you feel? We, 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 I mean, people, we were popping champagne. I mean, we, we thought this is insane, right? 10,000 people. And, and the super old guys, the guys that had been there at the, the day one, talked about being shocked when they hit five. They said, if we could get to 500 people at once playing on the client. Now you're 20, that would be, 20X that. That would be un, unspeakably successful, right? Right. And then, and then it was, but then before you could blink, it was 10,000. And then before you could blink, it was 50,000, you know? And I mean, the story, the, what I remember was when we first got ready to spread a 100, 200 limit hold'em game. And that was basically the biggest game that you could get in the United States at the time. And um, Isai wanted me to sit and watch the game the whole time just to make sure that everything appeared to be on the up and up. That there wasn't some kind of, you know, collusion or whatever going on. Um, Daniel, the, the, the waiting list for the game was hundreds of people. And Daniel Negreanu had to go shopping and he had gotten a seat in the game and he had to go shopping and he didn't want to leave the game because then he would never get a seat back. <laughs> right. And so he had like early technology that allowed him to have mobile computing. And he was literally walking around the grocery store with this, you know, sort of hand top or whatever it was at the time, you know, playing his hands so we wouldn't lose his seat in the game. It was, uh, I remember in 2004, Greg Raymer winning a, a satellite. He won the last satellite into the World Series that we dealt. 
And it was, it was the middle of the night and we were dealing, we were firing off these one table satellites, um, one table sit and goes that would award a world series seat. And um, I was talking to the guy that was deploying them and it got later and later. And he said, well, Isai told me to stop at midnight or whatever, whatever it was. And we're getting like emails are just pouring into customer support. So keep them going, keep them, you know, everybody wanted to win their package to get into the world series. Right. And I was like, man, I, I don't know what to do here. Right. And so finally we said, okay, we're going to do three more and then that's it. We're going to cut them off. And it was going to be like 1230 or whatever. And like he said, I can yell at us tomorrow if he wants to. Right. And the very last one we dealt, Greg Raymer won got his package into the world series and so he was wearing poker star so he was all you know patched up with poker star stuff and um i'll tell you brad by the time we got to 2005 25 if i'm not mistaken 20 percent 20 percent of the people in the 2005 world series of poker main event were poker stars qualifiers i i believe it do you, do you remember your market share back then in the poker space, because I know I know around around that time, like uh, party poker emerged, right? Party poker was y'all's major, yeah, because of Mike Sexton and WPT, sure, right? But, uh, and UIGEA torpedoed them. Um, I believe that was two thousand six when UIGEA yeah, it was October of six. But thinking thinking back to those days, um, you know they had two fifteens every night with two hundred k guaranteed nightly. This was yeah. a nightly tournament, uh, six days a week. Sunday was like a million dollar guaranteed, um, five hundred dollar buy in or whatever. But yeah, it was a, uh, it was a, a crazy time in the poker world. Like business was booming. What was the the reaction when Party Poker pulled out of the U.S. market, leaving p- Poker Stars? Like, oh, you, you know, you just automatically picked up that market. Well, share. it was. I mean, it was a very tough decision, you know, for for Isai. To stay in oh, the yeah. U.S. I mean, the calculus of that decision yeah. was, you know, humongous. And I wasn't around for those discussions. I mean, that was far, far above my pay grade. But I do, I do remember a scene where Isai walked into the break room at our Isle of Man office. And there was, you know, four, five, six of us in the room. And he went and he just he gets a he just gets a banana out of the fruit bowl and he and he peels his banana he just like leans against the counter he just kind of looks at us and it's just, we're just some random collection of you know poker stars <laughs> employees right I mean there's nothing important about us per se and he goes so do you think we should stay or go <laughs> and of course we weren't going to make the decision and but I Isai was just you know he was just thinking out loud. And he and, and he and the lawyers and, and everybody else ultimately decided to stay. And, and you were absolutely right that at that point, we just became the juggernaut. And party went down and we skyrocketed. And, you know, that was that until 2011. So 2011. This is, this is the um, antagonist in a lot of these interviews. 2011. April 15th, mm-hmm. 
tell me about that going through Black Friday. What was you know, the, the the emotions so, from the Poker Stars employees? All that I stuff. was in a very weird state at that point. I I was living in the United States, and I had actually left Poker Stars basically because I needed I wanted to be back in the U.S. And you were living in the Isle of well, Man. Well, I had been living in the time. Isle of Man, and I moved back to the United States in 08. And I was no longer working for Poker Stars because um, I wanted to be in the U.S. And Esai said, I'm sorry, but I just can't have you work for Poker Stars in the U.S. because it's too hot there right now. And so I, I, was, I did some other jobs. I worked for Card Runners and Cake Poker. And for reasons that are, aren't terribly important here right now, I, I left Cake Poker. And I had actually contacted Esai towards the end of 2010 and said, you know, would you be interested in having me back at Poker Stars? And he said, yes, but it will have to be in the Isle of Man. And I said, okay, I'll come back to the Isle of Man. And so that was early 2011. And we were just in the process of me getting ready to move back to the Isle of Man. And I remember one of my colleagues emailing me from Isle of Man or pinging me on you know, Skype effectively and saying, uh, get on the PokerStars client and tell me, tell me what you see. And I said, and I got on the poker or on, on the PokerStars website. And I said, Oh, this is weird. It says something about the DOJ. And he said, Oh, I think this is not good. So I wasn't on the Isle of Man when it happened, but I mean, you're prep prepping. You're I was almost, almost there. there. And, and I, you know, my wife was out shopping and somebody had seen her and said something like, is this going to affect Lee? And she was like, what are you talking about? Never a good sign. Never a good I, sign. Um, but I waited a couple of days and then I called Esai and I said, you know, cause I thought he might say, you don't have a job. Right. And he said, do you still want to come back? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, come on back. Um, but the stories I heard from people who had been colleagues before and people who are still colleagues and so on and so forth was of an absolute all hands on deck, you know, general quarters kind of thing. And people working nonstop for 72 hours to essentially replatform the site to be EU based rather than dot com based. And, um, you know, the finance people, everybody remembers what happened at Full Tilt, right? But what they may not know is, is that PokerStars refunded $115 million to American players in three weeks. Yeah, they covered Full Tilt. I mean, well, that, that wasn't Full Tilt at the time. That was our American player balances. Oh, they, they, yeah, they, they covered, they covered the, the U.S. balances, and then eventually they did cover Full Tilt too, correct? And then eventually we made the Full Tilt players hold. But in, within the first three weeks, we got in touch with the DOJ and said, may we have permission? Like, you basically have to open the channels for us to be able to pay our players back. And the DOJ said, yes, we'll let you do that. It, it, it feels like poker stars, it feels like there would be this adversarial relationship with the DOJ. But also, you know, knowing what I know in, in UIGEA in 2006, like, it feels like this was an eventuality, right? And the leader of stars, like you said, the smartest guy in the room, has to 
factor in that this is a possibility eventually, totally, right? Yeah. You would think. Absolutely. So there, there is some sort of redundancy transition plan in, in the case of this black swan event occurring you in know, the U.S. I, I am, I'm not privy to those discussions or that planning. It would be very unlikely side not to have some kind of plan. But on the other hand, I don't think he necessarily planned for a immediate, you know, like the lights going out. Right. But I, I mean, the, the point is, is that a well-run company, if the lights just go out, it's not as chaotic. Right. I mean, that's why because we had segregated our funds. Like we were able to say, OK, we're just going to give the money back. And unlike full um, that was the, unlike full tilt. I mean, exactly. Right. And, you know, I will never forget. And I'm not going to throw this person under the bus by name. But there was a very well-known poker player um, who's still well-known in poker circles who basically said full tilt will succeed and poker stars will fail because full tilt is being run by poker players and poker stars was not. So, And yeah, it's a lot of hubris. The problem was lack of business experience in full tilt. And, and I, I think you can make the argument that poker stars succeeded and full tilt failed exactly because poker stars was being run by businessmen. And full tilt was... I mean, it wasn't so much that they were being run by poker players, but they were being run by poker players with no business sense. Right. Like there, there can be this balance, right? It doesn't have to be like one or the other. You, you reach this balance where it's like, yeah, poker players intuitively know the ecosystem. They know the consequences of all these decisions and they can, they can help with the innovation side. The business side, business is a lot different than, than the poker side. What what was behind the decision to refund the full tilt players? Why did Poker Stars do that? Well, that was a, I mean, that was a an agreement that we came to with the Justice Department in 2012, where we acquired all the assets of Full Tilt. They um, they ended their uh, prosecution against. They dropped their charges against Poker Stars, the corporate entity. Okay. And part of that was our agreement that we would pay back the full tilt players. Okay, okay. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Why 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 full tilt specifically? Why not ultimate bet and absolute? I'm not sure of the details and I don't want to say things that I'm not I'm not sure of. Sure. So I don't wanna I don't want to go down that path. I would just I'd be making things up and I don't want to do that. Sure. Okay. Um what I I mean what I do know is is that I I strongly believe that it was the belief of the PokerStars management that paying back the full tilt players was probably a necessity to rescue online poker in the United States. For it to have a potential future. Exactly. Because, and that's the thing too, if you are thinking long-term, long-term plan, PokerStars after Black Friday positioned itself very well to re-enter the poker market eventually. Um, right. Well, they never left the European poker market, right? Exactly. And now in, in every jurisdiction region in the U.S., they, they're there, right? Uh, Modulo, Nevada, but yeah. Okay, let's segue. Let's segue to, to, to some other stuff, even though I love the, the behind-the-scenes poker stars and Black Friday, all that stuff. So what's the most unexpected? By the way, I, I want to say one more thing. Yeah, go, let's go for it. Speaking of, and I just want this on the public record. When poker stars turned off the lights in the United States, something like 
some between 30 and 40 percent of our business disappeared overnight. PokerStars laid off exactly zero employees. Wow. And any American company, most companies in the world would immediately shed some meaningful percentage of their employees. Um, and nobody would think twice about it, particularly in the United States, right? And PokerStars laid off zero employees. And that was a decision by Isai Mark Scheinberg, his son, that everybody was going to keep a job one way or another doing whatever they had to do. That's amazing. Like that, that's in, incredible. And a really good way to, to build loyalty within your company too is, you know, it's just oh, yeah. very, uh, that, that is a very, yeah, I, I never knew. That's, that's amazing. What is up my loyal chasing poker greatness listener coach Brad here. And I just wanted to take a moment to ask you a simple question. How many times have you heard my guests and I speak passionately about the benefits of poker coaching? You get to expand your poker network, receive expert feedback you can rely on, and have your burning questions answered by a trusted mentor. Which brings me to the Poker Power Hour, a series of 100% free live one-hour poker webinars, masterclasses, and hand history breakdowns that kick off each and every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Poker Power Hour will be led by me, Coach Brad, as well as some of your favorite Chasing Poker Greatness guests. It will be your weekly guide for helping you plug your leaks, skyrocket your poker growth, expand your network of crushers, and inevitably win more money on the green felt. The Poker Power Hour is premium content and live only. There will be no free replays or view on demand and the content will eventually be released as paid training only. So head to EnhanceYourEdge.com, opt in to the Poker Power Hour, and get for free today what you'll have to pay for it later. Once again, to catch the Poker Power Hour every single week, head to EnhanceYourEdge.com and join the email newsletter. Now, back to the show. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey, your poker career? The travel, the experience, the people, you know, I spent a year working on the EPT and then a couple of years, two or three years sort of working part-time on the EP, the European poker tour. And, you know, if I, I, when I was a youngster, I was, when I was in my early twenties, I was really jealous of people that got to travel a lot with their business. It's like they got to see the world and somebody else paid for it. Right. That's the dream, right? That's the dream. And if, well, for some people it is right. But it, I mean, it was certainly one of my dreams. Well, if the 50 year old Lee Jones had told the 23 year old Lee Jones. Yeah. So you're going to be living overseas and you're going to be going to all these cool European cities and, and, you know, staying in fancy hotels and, and hanging out with cool people and working on all these, you know, like helping people run poker tournaments. Like the 23-year-old Lee Jones would have just like laughed in his face. It's like, you know, send, send me a ghost with a better story to tell. <laughs> so that was the, certainly, that's what I got. That was the most unexpected thing. I had no concept that it would ever lead. Like when I was writing Winning Lily and Hold'em, I was essentially trying to codify what I thought I understood about playing poker when six people were seeing the flop for three bets each. Right. 
you were getting away from the the Malmuth and Sklansky heuristics and yeah and and then you know so that was 1994 well in 2004 so 10 you know 10 12 years later there I was calling cards at the final table of the European Poker Tour main event in in Monte Carlo really <laughs> is this real life how did you feel calling calling the main event like did you did you have gratitude in the moment oh yeah yeah i mean gratitude and i'm glad you brought that word up because early on from from the absolute jump of this whole experience gratitude has shot through the whole thing and and i never ever take that for granted i know that Isai could have picked any number of other people. I don't know if you recognize the name Lou Krieger, but Lou wrote a bunch of books. He's, he's since passed away, but Isai talked to Lou Krieger first and said, well, you have to move to Costa Rica. And Lou said, well, I don't want to move to Costa Rica. And Isai said, okay, well, that's that. And Isai actually told me, oh, you have to move to Costa Rica. And I was like, I, I don't think I can really move to Costa Rica. You know, I just got married. My wife has two sons, one of them is in high school, I, you know, and we, but we actually rethought it. And the later legendary Terrence Chen became the head of customer service down in Costa Rica. And I stayed in, in the States. So, I mean, just like, that's the thing. It's like Chris hits his two outer against Umberto Brennis and avoids getting busted. And then, and then he busts Phil Ivy and Sammy doesn't call the bluff. And, and now it's like, I, I am a miracle child to be in this industry at all. Right. Maybe we all so are. I, so I am, I am filled with gratitude, you know, throughout for all of this. And yes, I was certainly standing there in Monte Carlo going like, is this real oh life? God, this is, yeah. This, is this, is this real life? I spoke with Matt Savage cause he called, he ran that WSOP that year and he, he was t- talking to me about like the producers that were documenting the journey and they were like yeah chris moneymaker he's our guy that's 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 the guy that's that's gonna win the thing and i'm like yeah of course like this is this is like the producer's dream right the guy named moneymaker who's a recreational in in this shark tank comes out victorious like you can't go make watch up a better the video story. sometime go watch the video time and listen to norman chad and lon mccarran saying some pretty deprecating things about Chris early on in the going. Did their, tune, their, their tune changed, right? As it went along. But this, so the, the thing is like the commentary aspect of it, this was, it was not released in real time, right? There was some lag. No, between. there was, po- there was post-production. Yeah, there, yeah. there was production. But you had, but the point is, is that you had the, the live, I mean, there was some amount of commentary that was being done like that day right okay. that was the, okay that was what they had in the can for that day gotcha i got you and there was this there was this very much this sense of how dare this in general these young recreationals these internet kids whatever right you know dare to get into a pot with johnny chan or you know whatever yeah it's like dude johnny gets two cards i get two cards let's play some poker right? yeah everybody's human and Nobody's really as great as everybody thinks they are either, uh, right. which is one of the beauties of poker. When you think about pain in your career in poker, what's the first memory mm-hmm. that comes to mind? 
Well, unfortunately, I, I would just have to really go back to the things um, that we talked about before, Black Friday, UIGEA, things like that. Yeah. That's really, that's really the only pain. Um, I like the gratitude pain scale. It's like this, right? Gratitude is here and pain is there. Right. So gratitude alleviates suffering and pain. It, it, you know, enough of it does. And, and I've, I've been, I I fell out of the lucky tree and hit all the branches. (laughs) So I, I mean, yes, there's been pain. Um, It was, it was hard. It was hard to see people, you know, uh, colleagues that I cared for leave the company. I mean, there was a period there where basically nobody left poker stars. And so there was people I worked with for 10, 12 years. And then, then for whatever reasons they moved on. And, and that was, that was always sad. Cause like the jobs come and go, but those, those, those faces, those relationships, you know, like when you stopped seeing them at the office or on, on your, Skype feed or whatever it was. I mean, that was, that was difficult. I, I, I do want to ask this because I, 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 the history of poker stars is not something that I has been at the forefront of my mind because they haven't been in the U S market right, for sure. all this time. So I do know that poker stars has been sold, I believe a couple of times now, right? Yes. Um, so when Isai sold, was he still on with the company? No. No, when he and Mark when he and Mark sold, that was twenty fourteen. They sold to Amaya. Um, they completely were completely divorced from the company in every respect. How was that transition? Weird as hell. <laughs> <laughs> we went from being a family owned company to being a corporate company, and you can't. I mean, that can't not be a big. Thing. Was there friction? More friction? Was there people leaving after the change of leadership? Yeah, I think there was. I mean, it was it was a different it was a different dynamic, and we all had to come to the realization um, that it was never going to be the same. And certainly, I mean, you want to talk about pain? There was there was definitely pain there. I mean, we were living in a in a sort of artificial world where we had this benevolent dictator that just, you know, had all the answers and took care of everything, right? Had all the answers, took care of everything and took care of everybody. He would come to the the Christmas party and he'd be the last guy off the dance floor. You know, I was like, what, what else do you want? I think that actually could be more jarring than black Friday for poker stars for the, for the employees. Oh, I, Certainly it was. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that. Why did he sell? Just retirement? Ready to move on? No, 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 no. <laughs> retirement. <laughs> retirement? Don't be silly. Uh, it was essentially a situation where I think he knew that we would never get back into the United States while he was in charge because the, of his issues with the DOJ had never been resolved. So for the greater and good. For and so essentially, people that didn't want poker stars in the United States were using his presence as an excuse not to let poker stars. So yeah, I think I think for the greater good. I mean, it made him it made him a stupidly wealthy man. It made him a billionaire <laughs> yeah. with a B. And I think he would have 
I don't think there's a chance in the world he would have done the deal if he thought that he could take poker stars into the United States, back into the United States while he was at the helm. Yeah. It's, uh, the irony, it's hard to, to miss the irony of incentivizing a company to sell from, you know, I don't want to characterize like the good guys versus the other guys, but like basically a family owned business to a corporation. And that being the, that being what, what makes it possible to, to move poker stars back into the market. Like you would think that the original leadership and having Isai on board would be way more beneficial than having poker stars simply ran by, by a corporation. But who am I? Who am I? Yeah. Who, knows? who are, who are we? Who, who are we to, to are we? above our pay grades? Yeah, it, it is, but it, it's just, there, there's a lot of things that don't make sense as far as the United States and online poker and, the universe it probably who knows if it'll even ever make sense in my lifetime i don't know let's talk about what you're doing now but then we'll get into the lightning round we'll segue from there so yeah so uh tommy angelo who who we've mentioned before and i um are doing this project called poker simple and uh, i don't know if you've seen any of the videos but we're basically doing a weekly trading video wednesday is poker simple day and um the two of us are just sitting in front of a camera and talking about poker topics. And we started doing it basically because, you know, an interesting thing has happened. It's like I, I, in all these years with everything that's happened, I've always just loved the game of poker. And, and Jason Somerville will tell you that nobody loves poker more than Lee Jones. And that's coming from a guy that loves poker a lot, but yeah, I just love poker and I love teaching poker. I love teaching people to enjoy the game because I just want people to enjoy it. And the more you understand it and the more it gets its hooks into you, the more you enjoy it. So anyway, Tommy and I started making this, um, this video series and, you know, we knew nothing about what we were doing. We didn't know how to edit a video. We didn't know how to make a video. We were clueless. And our first couple of videos, fortunately, our wives stopped us and said, you may not put those on the internet. <laughs> and then we made a couple of videos and our wife said, you could put those on the internet, but we wouldn't recommend it. And then finally, we made a video and our wife said, you can put that on the internet. And that was 10 weeks ago or 11 weeks ago. We, we just released uh, episode 11 yesterday. And you know, we're getting this great feedback. People seem to be getting something from it. And I think what we are hoping to do is, is there's so much stuff that's out there right now that says poker is difficult and complex and, you know, and minimum, you know, minimum calling frequencies and, you know, range versus range and, you know, all this. And, I, in one sense, as an engineer, as as a sci, you know, as a guy with an engineering and computer science background, I revel in in the game, getting this kind of formal study and, and investigation, and you know, the the people standing on the shoulders of the giants to learn more and more about the game. But I also worry that it it could scare away people who just want to play and and not feel like they are absolute targets when they walk into a, the local card room. 
And so we've been trying to bridge that gap and help people become more comfortable, more competent, more at ease with their game. And it is, it, poker can get overcomplicated and people can get stuck in this narrative that you have to be at X level. You have to understand X in order to be able to move up to play X, right? Like you need to understand, you need to have a great understanding of GTO in order to play 510 No Limit competitively online versus your competition. In a lot of ways, I look at these things as excuses people make. Barriers they set in front of themselves that prevent them from being as successful as they can be. You look at a variance calculator, you you look at what might and could go wrong, and and it makes you fearful, right? It makes you fearful Mm -hmm. as to your your possible potential success. And bridging that gap, making things simple, simplifying the process for people is much needed in the poker world. And Mm -hmm. I I think the feedback is reflective of that, that people, people want simplicity. Sure. Poker players revel in the complexity <laughs> they want like right like well a certain a certain component the, the ones making content or certain certain ones making content and you know revel in the complexity and i do not begrudge them that right it's fascinating to learn all this stuff it's like you know when the, when the first computers beat chess and everybody's head exploded right and now computers are beating poker and everybody's head is exploding because, you know, they're learning these things. And then you've got this bot that's like betting three times the pot. And everybody's like, well, what the hell? This never happened. So that's amazing. But as you say, people, the large majority of people are just like, I want simplicity. I don't, I don't want the game to become a, a chore for me. Like when I go play guitar, there's ways I could get a lot better at guitar and having been a musician and a semi-professional musician, I know what they are. It would involve study and practice and scales and, you know, all this stuff. I just want to play guitar and hear music come out and be happy. Right. So many people just want to go play poker and enjoy it. And, you know, like maybe not even be a winning player, but like to lose less or maybe win a little bit more, you know, and that's that's all they want. They, I mean, they don't want to. They don't want to go heads up with Matt Berkey. <laughs> well, some people don't, <laughs> or some people do. Most people don't. There are people that do. Right. There are people that, that well, love are, the challenge, right? These are the world class competitors. Them. Absolutely bless them, you know. And I get that, right? I mean, if that's where you get your joy, and there is a kind of person that gets their joy from playing against world competition, world class competition. So, you know, and I. That that you have you have to be you, right? And if that's if that's where your if that's where your buzz comes from, go and do. And I hope I hope you go toe to toe with Matt and get, you know get into a draw. But, <laughs> but the great majority of players just want to go down and have a good time. And if they feel you know like if that person can be a little bit more successful at the game, simply defined as losing less or winning a little bit more, then then, you know, then that's going to make them super happy. And I, just to play devil's advocate for everybody listening, um, what if what everybody believes and assumes to be true, especially with something like GTO, 
and PioSolver in these simulations, what if it's not 100% true? And what if it's what if humans are not able to actionably do the thing, take the strategies that it recommends? What if the inputs are wrong? Like these are things that when you base I'm about I'm getting ready to talk to Nick Howard in an hour and he talks a lot about the dogma of poker theory and how when somebody does something that in their mind is totally against GTO, you know, mm-hmm. folding uh folding a boat, right? Like we'll just say you're folding King's Pre. Like, you know, it's it's just this you have a thousand people saying that that's wrong, that's incorrect, that's not right. When in some cases it's absolutely correct. And like True. it's just be careful uh, of your path and the information that you're being given. Be, be careful taking anything as the gospel because very, very few things are the gospel in poker. And it doesn't have to be ultra complicated. When I was beating the game and granted like uh, 10 years ago or 14 years ago, like it wasn't super ultra complicated, especially like in a live setting. You don't need all right. this complexity because live changes so much slower comparatively to online. You don't have a database sure. to analyze. Um, mm. You can't do real like leak finding super easily. It's just harder to evolve. So mm. anyway, just be careful of the educational material that you consume. And there, you know, definitely a market for simplifying things and making poker more inclusive. Because I, I do think that if people didn't self-sabotage, that most human beings are capable of becoming winning players if they put in the time and they put in the work. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, and I should say that our, our um, uh, yeah, our, our videos are, are essentially intended for live. Yeah, our videos are intended for live cash players. And so, because it's what we know. Sure. Right? I mean, yeah. it, is, it is what we play and it's what we know. And I'm not going to tell somebody you can take this into a, a 510 online game. And or and certainly don't take this to a tournament. I mean, some of the stuff we do where we talk about bankroll or we talk about, you know, tilt or anything like that, certainly all of that stuff is is relevant. But whenever we're talking about strategy per se, it's we're talking about um, we're talking about live cash. And as you say, it evolves more slowly. It's a if it's it's a different demographic. You know, and like I don't know if it's I don't know if PO Solver would ever say, yeah, you should fold King's preflop. You know, I've done it. I've done it twice in my life. I was right both times. There was a third time where, and the first time I should have done it, I absolutely knew I needed to do it. I had my my fold all set up, and then my hands couldn't pull the trigger that my brain had set up for them, and I got shown aces. Um, you know, so I don't care what P.O. Solver said. I knew in that moment, my very best poker player knew in that moment that I needed to fold the Kings. I do want to make a distinction too, because you can get P.O. PO to, sol- to, to fold Kings, right? If you give your opponents a range of aces and Kings, yeah. if you use that as your inputs. And in the real world, in poker, Sometimes when you have enough information to make incredible decisions based on who you are, how much you've studied, how, how you're able to collect data um, using what Malcolm Gladwell calls a blink, which is um, you know, using your, your subconscious mind to lead your intuition, you can make mm-hmm. otherworldly plays 
that just putting them into a solver without all the other data, without all the other information, tells you to do something way different. But your gut, right. your intuition tells you, no, this player has aces here, period. So then you fold, right? Like it's not a mistake to fold kings when you know or you have, you know, with a high, high level of certainty that, that your, mm. your opponent has aces. And I think that's where people go wrong when they say, okay, I know I'm not ever supposed to fold here, even though I feel like I should fold. And then they just call like that. There's nothing right about that. That is a sure path straight to mediocrity. Do you know what? Uh, Tommy has a great phrase. He's, and I, I think he's actually written an article about it. And if he hasn't, he should. And it says, just because I'm exploitable doesn't mean I'm being exploited. I, I mean, there, there's, there's the flip side too, right? Like looking at a hand chart and going over the heuristics of raise X in middle position, raise X in early position, raise X in late position, not deviating from that based on the circumstances surrounding you. Like poker to me, when I, when I think of a, a live poker game or an online poker game, it's an organism that changes based on sure. the opponents that stand up and the ones that sit down. It's ever-evolving. Guy moves seats. This changes your opening ranges. Like It changes your baseline strategy. So like if I have you know four nits on my left, well, of course, I'm going to start opening 98% like just because I know that I can steal their blinds and, and I can make them fold with a high degree of certainty. So like... Right. I want the audience just to be wary of these heuristics. Um, treat, treat baseline strategies as baseline strategies and then use your deductive reasoning to make better decisions moving forward. And don't be afraid to simplify to make life easier. And, you know, like one of the classic ones that I make is um, I, I tell people, you know what, just don't ever limp into a pot. And, and, and I'm not, you know, nobody, nobody needs to agree with that. But, you know, because people say, oh, well, there's, there's circumstances where you should limp into a pot. And I'm like, I'm sure you're right. And for many, many players, that's a gateway drug to limping into too many pots with too many bad hands and too many bad positions. Right. So if we just tell that person at the moment, these are the blinders that you have on. You may not limp into a pot. And one day we may take those blinders off. But if we do not permit you the gateway drug of limping in a certain set of specific circumstances, then we will prevent you from, you know, making a bunch of other bad limps. Yeah. Anyway, that's, and, that's an example, but I think it's a good one. And making worse decisions as you go deeper into the decision tree, like exactly. so making these heuristics when people are early in their poker careers that save them future mistakes is yes is clearly beneficial and help them get a leg up into the game right so they're enjoying themselves and and they're like then then they start to they they basically the game gets its hooks into them and (laughs) we got it of course and and yeah for for the poker world's health you know this is obviously very needed right just for to, to have a sustainable healthy ecosystem you don't want people going bust on day one because that, that's not super beneficial to anybody. No, that's, that doesn't serve anybody. Right. All right. So let's do lightning round and I'll get you out of here. And then I'll... Uh, Thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. Uh, let's do it. All right. It's my pleasure. Okay. So if you could gift all poker players one book, what would it be and why? Wow. 
Um, elements of poker, Tommy, Tommy Angelo's elements of poker. It, because so many people know how to play far better than they actually do play. That's a and I think elements of poker does a spectacular job of closing the gap between your ability and the act and the degree to action to which you actually achieve it. Yeah. A lot of people are much better in theory than they are in live practice. hundred percent. Right. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, what would it be? More diversity, particularly um, women. Well, what I, I mean, what I would do is I would, dissolve the occasionally toxic environment and dynamic within the poker world. How would you do that? With my magic wand. I mean, <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean like people, you wouldn't have a bunch of misogynistic comments at the table. You would, you know, people would be polite and gracious to each other. It, it would just, it would just, you know, like there's, there's a level of tolerance for that kind of stuff in the poker world that I think is not healthy for anybody. And, and I think in particular, it keeps people that not only women, but just people that just don't want to be around that vibe sometimes. Yeah. I sometimes have to just make decisions about like, okay, am I willing to put up with this toxic human at my table so I can stay in a poker game and I don't need it. Right. And you know, there, there are a number of, I mean, you played at the commerce. Need I say more? I think that commerce gets a bad rap in some ways. Like there are some bad, there are some scummy people, but all in all, like I I think that as human beings, we have a negativity bias where the scummy people stand out amongst everyone, even though they are a small percentage of the population. It's such a complex issue. This whole, this whole thing. I, I spoke about it with Jennifer Shahadi in depth about the mm-hmm. inclusivity of poker and women. And it's like, there, there's, there's gray area moments. There's obvious douchebaggery that happens like obvious, right. like clear and obvious. Um, most of the douchebaggery comes from bad players is one element that complicates everything because, because there's this trap where this horrible, horrible poker player is sitting with $10,000 acting like a complete jackass. Do, and do I make nobody him Nobody at the table nope. wants him to go away. Nobody wants him to leave. So that, you know. I am rapidly, uh, and for years now, I've really been in a state where I would just like, my life is too short. Like, I don't care about his $10,000 as much as I care about enjoying the poker game. So please kick his ass out. Yeah, but I, I, th- I, I'm in the minority. Well, I always want to bust him. I think that's, uh, I, but I mean, I, I think that over time, I have a lot of regret. If I could say that there's there there are things in my poker career regret, it's not standing up and being more vocal in those situations, like I could have missing opportunities like that. I would say if I could go back and change things, I think that as a man and a human now, I'm way less tolerant. I have two young girls um a 10 year old and an eight year old my my wife is my life and that's given me way different perspective than i had as a as a 23 year old human being no doubt no doubt because at the at the end of the day right it's a sample size of one as far as life perspective um right (laughs) that's what we're dealing with um (laughs) 
So you get those outside perspectives. It just it changes changes how you how you perceive things. If you could erect a billboard that every poker player had to drive past on the way to the casino, what would it say? Fold more preflop. Oh, you and Tommy and y'all are perfect partners. (laughs) It's just like really. I mean, I I just see it all the time. And and the thing is, is that the theory actually supports that. Like you talk to Ed Miller, any of those guys that actually know what they're talking about. And he's like, okay, look, here's the math. If you play too many hands pre-flop, you got to get rid of them somehow, right? And no matter how you get rid of them, somebody that knows what they're doing is going to make your life miserable. Right. And the- I mean, if you, you know, there's some circumstances in some environments where you can just bully your way through and you can just like bet, 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 eventually they give up. But when you start running into people that actually know what they're doing, they... The, the math will not let you get away with playing way too many hands pre-flops. Yeah, they'll punish you. Um, and the thing is, is that so many problems that you talk about, like getting, you know, running into awkward situations. Well, you know, if you fold more pre-flop, many fewer of those awkward situations come up. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting that... Playing a hand that's profitable pre-flop leads to unprofitable decisions further on the decision tree. And when you go to war with wizards and crushers who look at the decision tree where like, you know, this is pre-flop and then post-flop gets so much bigger and they're comfortable in those deep waters. They'll drag Mm -hmm. you out there. They will put your head underneath until you're out. Like they, they will crush you deep in the decision tree. So folding pre, you avoid having to, you know, you, you stay in your car. <laughs> you don't go out on the beach. Right, exactly. So I'll skip this one, unless you have another project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart, besides poker. This is uh, the, the two biggest projects I have. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, this, this is the big one that's poker relevant. So it doesn't yeah, have to be it. poker relevant. No, I, it's, um, I'm, I'm playing a ton of bluegrass music these days and loving it. It's, I just, I haven't been able to do enough of it and, and it's good to be back playing because we're back in California and I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm delighted to be playing more music. Now I've got, I've got uh, blisters on my fingers from playing too much a weekend ago. So I'm super happy. Can I, can I ask you a favor? Can you send me, send me, um, some bluegrass that you played? I'll put it in the outro to our episode. Oh my God. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll find something. Perfect. Perfect. Um, at the end of the day, like so, let's fast forward 10, 10 years. Well, what 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 do you want to come from the Poker Simple Project in even five years? Like, what 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 are the the results you would like to see? I've already gotten the results. Tommy and I are working on a project together. We're having a blast. I know how to use vid- video editing software. I couldn't have even spelled a year ago. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and and of course, when you try to teach something, it you learn it really well. So. You have to. Yeah, so it's I'm I'm having I'm just having a good time with the project and however far it goes, it goes. And I and I'm I'm grateful for that. Lee, it's been a pleasure and honor talking to you and having you on the show. And final question. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the interwebs? The very well, they can go to LeeJones.com. And, um, you know, I'm doing some coaching when I have time. So if, you know, if you're interested in coaching, definitely give me a call, leejones.com. But definitely Poker Simple. If you Google Poker Simple one word, we're all over it. Awesome. So 
uh, go to our YouTube channel and who knows what will come from there. But yeah, Poker Simple, one word on Google will we'll get you to me and Tommy and we'd love to see you out there on the interwebs. Poker Simple, check it out. And now let's uh, fade out to Lee and Bluegrass. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please take a moment to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. And once again, I wanted to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're on the lookout for a new poker platform where the games are safe and secure and the action's amazing, head to EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod to get your code and jump into the games. You must have a code to play as well as be 21 years of age or older. One final time, that's EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time on Chasing Poker Greatness.